Many of the problems society faces today are the result of enterprise. For-profit business drives pollution and inequality. Business has created global warming. And yet, business is also the most powerful problem-solving machine we have. 30 years ago, Ronaldo Brudico founded the World Business Academy as a think tank focused on the role business should play in solving humanity's challenges. The vision of Ronaldo Brudico is that business can and should be a force for good. In this conversation, we talk about what business can do to solve the problem of global warming. Welcome to the Climate Solutions Summit. You were the founder of the World Business Academy. That is more than 30 years ago. What was the idea at the time? That the, the speed of change was becoming the largest single problem in society. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus famously observed that you never step twice in the same stream, meaning uh, change is the nature of our existence. It's always been here, change. What's different about change now, we've observed in 1969, I think it's even clearer and more true today, is the speed of change. And what we saw were human institutions unable to keep up with the speed of change, that the demands on us as a human society were not being met properly by our historical institutions. So we didn't have enough um, ability in, for example, our political systems to adapt as quickly as we had to to what were the challenges that were increasingly arising. Uh, same was true with our religious institutions. It's not only have we lost confidence in politics, we've lost confidence in mainstream religions. The third institution we looked at was the institutions that all arise over academe, because a lot of us came from academe or were familiar with it. And, and um, we saw that academe was the, the, the organization or the institution within society that would take all of this information we'd learned in the past, and we'd linearly project it to tell us what we needed to know about the future. That's what education was supposed to do. Well, that doesn't work when you're changing so fast that the past bears increasingly less relevance to the future. So we said, okay, what's the one institution in society that can deal with change, that's designed to deal with change? And the answer is business. So our very first meeting, we talked about spirit and business. In fact, we called it the S word because we said, if we talk about the word spirit in the same sentence with business, they'll think we're flaky. They, they won't think we're real business people, and all of us were. So we'll call it the S word so nobody knows what we're really doing. But the truth is, we have to imbue business with this, this new dimension and that dimension has something that goes beyond just the everyday hurly-burly of the marketplace and imbues business leadership with the awareness that it not only can but must lead if human civilization is going to prosper. So that was 30 plus years ago. What, what, do, what do you observe since? Do you see that, that business actually stepped up to that challenge? Um, yes, I, I think, um, and I want to quote Ray Anderson here because you were asked a question that really brings Ray Anderson. Now, Ray, with his uh, carpet company, and he's the, you know, he was the guy who promoted carpet tiles because he was imp impressed by Paul Hawkins' observation that carpets were the number one thing filling up our landfills. And uh, so Ray took upon himself to climb Mount Sustainability, as, as he was inspired by Paul to do. And in that conversation with himself, he said, you know, and I, and I remember talking to Ray, because Ray was a member of the academy until the day he died. Uh, Ray said, if you only look at the top of Mount Sustainability, of where you are going, you probably won't get there because you become so discouraged. So periodically on the, on the climb up the mountain, I had to keep looking back to see how far I had come. And when I did that, it gave me the courage to keep going and to get to the top of Mount Sustainability. When I look back down the mountain, I see um, things like spirit and business being 
considered normal. I, I see taking the requirements of all the stakeholders into account when one makes business decisions as now considered best practices, not aberrational. If you remember the Chicago school uh, was telling everybody the business of business is business. Well, that's not true. The business of business is where we are today in society. And what business needs to do is to recognize that its markets are best preserved and benefited from if one looks at the entire whole of society. So we did a series of seminars 25 years ago on the triple bottom line, people, planet, profits, and we said if you don't look at all three, you won't be successful in the long term. And then about eight years ago, we added a fourth one, we now call it the quadruple bottom line, which is people, planet, profits, purpose. Why do you do what you do? It's absolutely critical to understand the fourth one in order to infuse the first three with success. So from my point of view, has business done enough? Absolutely not. We have a tremendous amount of work to do. We, we're uh, we're maybe halfway up Mount Sustainability. We're surely not three quarters of the way. But I see a growing awareness in business. Uh, the things that we thought were very unusual things to say 30 years ago are now easily accepted and some are considered just common sense. So there is an interesting paradox here because business is at, at the same time the problem and the solution. The way you talk about business is business as a solution. If we look at pollution, global warming, uh, even injustice, inequality, it's also business. I mean, that drives these problems. So how do we reconcile these two parts in business, the good part and the bad part? You know, first of all, I think the, the word drive is, is wrong. You see, part of what people don't realize about business, the reason why business deals so well with change is because they rule the marketplace, change or die. Business is very good at that. And that's the exact skill we need right now, because it is change or die on mm -hmm. a wholesale level. Business is not driving greed. Business is responding to it. The economy is a reflection of the society from which it arises, whether that's the US economy or the global economy. And when you look at it as inherently integrated, as inherently symbiotic, all of a sudden you go, wow, if we want to make profits in the future, we have to make sure we have a society that's capable of being stable enough that profits can be made there. So are you saying that, that where business is still off track, that ultimately that is a result of society haven't, hasn't changed enough, fast enough to, to actually set the conditions for business to do the right thing? Yeah, of course, because see, one of the things about business is, business is like a weather vane. When the public changes its mind, business goes like that. They change on a dime. Why? Because business is about satisfying social wants and needs. I would say that probably 75% of the traditional business community is still in the dark ages. But what's amazing is the 25% isn't. And that 25% increasingly is embracing the same things we started talking about 30 years ago. The issues associated with business doing the right thing for its own best interests is clearly understood. That linkage is understood now. And that's the beginning of the change. What is the essence of business? I think the essence of business is providing a good or service that society needs or appropriately wants. What is, a, is your favorite example of a business doing the right thing? Okay, more money is made by the individual solar installer than by the guy who stokes coal at the local power plant. If I open a restaurant down the street and I take my garbage and I throw it in the middle of the street, the city will close me down in a day. They'll say, wait a minute, part of the cost of doing business is you gotta haul your garbage away. So pay it to haul the garbage away and you can stay in business. The fossil fuel industry does not have that requirement. They're allowed to put all of their garbage in the air 
we, the public, pay for it. And they get no cost for doing that. So clearly there's a, there's a broken system here where the, where, the, where the marketplace is not even playing field. So solar doesn't create carbon dioxide, fossil fuels do. So if we charge the fossil fuels for the damage they do, the way we now charge sulfur, for example, for acid rain, yeah. then we would, it would it'd solve itself instantly. But the, but the markets are rigged. Why are they rigged? Again, because fossil fuel companies have been around so long, they have so much aggregated power and capital that they can afford to buy all the political outcomes they want, which is why we have a town called Washington, D.C., and why K Street is the heart of it, not <laughs> Capitol Hill. <laughs> <laughs> so you're talking about global warming now, which is, of course, the, the, the challenge of our times. Now, business, uh, as, as you have described it, can take the lead there. So tell me how that, how that works. What can business do? What more of? What, what, where well, should we see one, that leadership? What business has done where it's been wise is it sees the coming trend and it gets there. See, to me, I look at these challenges, I go, gee, what's the opportunity behind this challenge? Well, one opportunity behind carbon dioxide, someone's gonna make a lot of money pulling the CO2 out of the air because we got no choice. That's what business has to do. It has to identify the opportunities of the future, not be attached to the anchors of the past. So fossil fuel is an anchor of the past. Hydrogen, solar, wind, geothermal, that's the future. So you stated this very clearly, the power of, of the oil companies, the fossil fuel companies is such that they can basically buy whatever, whatever, whatever they need. they want. <laughs> they like that. So you can't be a senator, even a president without their support. That's black and white what the situation is. We all know that uh, new energy, renewable energy, is not as concentrated in its structure, right? Solar panels, are, you don't need a big plant for that. You have them on your roof. So. The democratization of energy, the way it works, the, the, the supply, would basically break up these power structures. If they don't change. And the reason is they have a product that's inherently deadly. We cannot afford to burn oil. I always thought it was insane to burn oil when it's also what we use for uh, sulfur drugs. So it has all kinds of uses that are positive without creating negative CO2, et cetera. But the oil companies will continue to extract the maximum from society, squeeze every last penny they can, and eventually they'll get caught. Now, how do I know that? Well, we just had an amazing case that came down from the U.S. Supreme Court as a result of the Massachusetts court, which held that all of the internal memoranda of the oil companies yeah. for the last 30, 40 years are subject to discovery. We know what they were writing in those memos. They were writing the same thing the cigarette companies were writing. Yeah. Cigarette companies knew about the risks to cancer and they lied to the public. So now fast forward 20 years since the cigarette companies got caught. What's happened is cigarette companies are shrinking. Well, in, in the developing world, they're, they're rapidly going away. And even what's left in the developing world doesn't have paper wrapping around it because I think it was American Tobacco or Philip Morris just bought Juul which is paperless nicotine delivery mechanisms, which if you think about it, is a medical device. Yeah. You may not like with the, the medicine in there, nicotine, yeah. but it is purely a medical device. And it's much safer to use than a burning piece of paper with leaves in it. Now, the developing world, uneducated as it is, has continued to consume more and more addicted cigarettes. But the fate of a cigarette company over time is the handwriting on the wall. They're going down, which is why they bought Juul. Because they say, okay, if we can't be making burning paper with leaves in it, we'll do something that's a medical device that people will still get addicted to and we won't kill as many people, but we'll have customers for a longer time. I guess that's a good trade-off. So that's an example of an industry that's got to be the worst miscreants in the world. Yeah. 
understanding that they gotta change or they will die. And I can apply that one after the other. It applies to energy systems, it applies to food systems. You know, the, the, the great decision came down in the, UK, in the European Union just two weeks ago where they're now gonna ban certain types of glyophosphates. So what is a glyophosphate? It's Roundup, basically, okay? And why did Monsanto invent Roundup? Because they wanted to be able to put a ton of deadly chemicals on a wheat field, cornfield originally, and breed into that corn ear of corn resistance to the Roundup so that the Roundup would kill the weeds and it wouldn't kill the corn. So genetic engineering, GMOs, right? GMO corn. And they've been running roughshod over legitimate corn growers for 20 years now. Let's say you're growing a GMO cornfield here with Monsanto, and a bird eats one of your corn seeds and drops it by accident in an organic field next door. They can close your entire field down. Yeah. Okay. Now that's insane. That's a, it's clearly an abuse of the legal system. Yeah. But it worked for a very long time, and it kept from the public the awareness that glyphosates are deadly. Europe just realized. I think they knew it a long time ago, but Europe just started moving on it. So you're going to see the end of glyphosates. Now I think it's fascinating that Bayer huge German chemical company, would choose to buy Monsanto right when it was really obvious to the rest of us it was like a sinking ship. It was the ship. wrong moment, yeah. It was the wrong moment. And now they're gonna pay. They're gonna pay big. So what will Bayer have to do? Bayer will have to find out what replaces toxic chemicals like glyophosphate with other ways to stay involved with either pesticides, fertilizers, or other chemical substances that are safe for people. And the smart ones who see it first, and I'll give you an example, there's a farm, dairy cows, in Virginia, called the Mason, the Mason Dixon uh, Farm, that was the first farm to adopt the idea of doing compostable manure to turn it into brown gas. And they use very primitive techniques. It was below ground instead of above ground. Today, that whole farm is completely electrified. Every operation on it is electrified. And they make more money selling their excess electricity than they do make selling milk. So they converted a money-losing business, dairy cows, into a huge success by realizing they can make more money with the electricity from the manure than just throwing the manure away. That's sustainable thinking. It's also good business thinking. Okay, so that's an interesting point because so often in these situations like this, when there is a challenge, a threat even, the, the first step that humankind tends to do is sort of step back and, and not always go into innovation mode, which is what we need. People sort of think, okay, then we have to uh, consume fewer fossil fuels, we have to drive less, we shouldn't fly anymore. Okay, I mean, that's, that's, I, okay, that to me is a real bugaboo, and I'll tell you why. So when I started doing my renewable energy work, say 19 years ago, 20 years ago, it was a legitimate question, could we get renewable energy to be competitive? Our research indicated it could get there clearly wasn't there 20 years ago. So uh, today, um, in wide deployments in places like Dubai, Saudi Arabia, Africa, I can install solar and have it produce electricity for 1.4 cents per kilowatt, yeah. down from a cost of 25 cents per kilowatt. Okay? Uh, wind is now very easy to do at around three to four cents per kilowatt. So we're now talking about energy cheaper than natural Most, gas. Yes. Okay, cheaper than natural gas. Okay, if you take all these subsidies away, it's now cheaper to use wind and solar. Now, when you combine it with storage, which then adds some extra sense, you create a green fuel system. So when I did it, uh, looked at it after about 10 years, and I said, okay, we could take all of the electricity generated, all the energy for electricity used in California, we could be 100% green in California and do it at no additional cost to the ratepayers. And it's turning out we were right. Now, 
who says it costs are the fossil fuel companies. They say, oh, you have to give up driving or you, have to, you can't fly as much and all that crap. It's not true. The truth is that innovation always creates far greater wealth than it destroys. So would you rather be operating without the Industrial Revolution? No. Created phenomenal wealth. And even though there were some ill consequences, most people would agree the Industrial Revolution was a good thing. It's just what we have to do is address those ill effects, those side effects that we have not previously addressed. So to me, it is a complete lie that it costs more to be green. The truth is it's cheaper to be green. When you look at human civilization, you say, okay, uh, what happened when we went from you know, uh, burning wood to burning coal? We created more wealth. What happened when we went from burning coal to lamp oil from whales? We created more wealth. Uh, what happened when we went from burning oil lamps from, to using oil? Created huge amounts of wealth. What happened when we went into natural gas? Huge amounts of wealth. Every time civilization advances its energy systems to something that's more appropriate to the full complement of questions, i.e., where do you put the garbage in this case? Where do you put the true cost? Where do, where do you build in the externalities so that the companies who create the wealth don't get to keep it and not have to pay for the damage they did. When you do that on an even playing field, the number of opportunities are legendary. I mean, it's just, they're legion. I mean, you just, it does not end. You, you, there's so many ways to make money in the green economies of the future. You've spoken about the opportunity that, that capturing carbon yeah. can be as, as, yeah. as an industry, that can be yeah. developed. You've also, you also see an opportunity to, to connect that with a, a larger uh, population problem that yep. the planet faces. Can you explain? Yeah. The migration of huge numbers of people out of Africa, which is only going to accelerate with climate change, you can't deal with it, and Europe's acutely aware of this, and, and uh, we'll be proposing a paper to European leadership probably within the next two months called the Eco-Africa Project. And the idea is if you want the Africans to stay in Africa, you've got to make it livable. So we have to create industries in the desert, as it were. And we can, and those industries could be based on sucking carbon out of the air. So we, we've got a whole proposal on how to do that economically and how that money could be used to hire Africans to run the machines and to run the plants that take the CO2 that's captured and turn it into useful products, okay? whether it's resins or whether it's fizz or whether it's any one of a dozen other possibilities. So two sources of income, one being the ability to get paid for taking CO2 out of the air, and two, turning that CO2 into something useful that then won't go back in the air. Um, with that kind of a revenue stream, using solar energy, you could actually create metropolis, a, a city that was built on this a dealing with climate change that would give jobs to the Africans, and lots of Africans, to stay in Africa. Solves Europe's problem, which is the destabilization of European governments by all the influx of refugees from Africa. So you, you're, you're really doing it because you want to solve the refugee problem, but what you're coming up with is a solution to climate change in the process. But you're very concerned about methane. Right. What can we do about methane? Now, could somebody come up with a methane-grabbing molecule? Maybe, but the density of CO2, as I, uh, I said a minute ago, that is the same everywhere in the world because the CO2 is completely ambient. So when I've got 410 parts per million at the top of an, uh, of an island in Hawaii, Mauna Loa, I got 410 parts or more in, in, in a city in, in modern Europe. Methane doesn't work that way. Methane is much more diffuse and it's not hovering at lower altitudes the way CO2 does. And, and so you have some interesting questions with where do you go to capture it? How high do you go to capture it? How do you capture enough of it that you, you can get it in, 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 in a cubic meter of space 
enough to make it doable. Right now, there is no science I know of that allows for that. But hey, anything's possible. Can we say that the challenge of global warming, which seems to be the biggest business challenge that there is, that that also has in itself the opportunity to create that more just and sustainable society that we wanted to have since the 60s? So right now, and just came out yesterday, two economists from UC Berkeley proposed a wealth tax uh, on people who may have more than $50 million dollars. And a, and a graduated higher one if they have more than $1 billion. And the theory is you could raise hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of many billions of dollars if you were to tax the top 1%. Would the top 1% be affected, their lifestyle? No. What it would do is it would start to rebalance what's gotten out of whack, which is we've created such a, we've hollowed out the middle class, which is the consuming class. And we've been driving all the money since the 70s up to the upper one, two percent. As a result, our ability to consume is eroding. So the biggest challenge I think business has in America today is it's losing its customers because they can't afford to buy stuff. But the second biggest challenge is the climate change because it's what's going to drive whether or not people can buy anything. So society's going to have to adapt. And it's going to have to say, can we live in deserts the way we do now? The way people in California are finally saying, can we live next to forests the way we did up until now? Can we not care that we could be consumed by a forest fire? Or do we have to build differently in forest fire areas? Can, can, can we continue to support with tax dollars, by the way, the people who are building on rocky coastlines that have been inundated by hurricanes on the barrier islands for decades? Yeah. Can we continue to let people build in flood zones? No, 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 you can't. Now, how are you gonna learn that lesson? You're gonna get tired of paying the money. And society will rise up and say, we're tired of subsidizing people building their homes in the middle of forests. We're not going to give them fire insurance. Can we say that the history of humankind shows that come to the challenge, we overcome, we survive? Yeah. You know the difference now is? The speed of change. The very thing we started talking about at the beginning of this interview. The speed of change is so fast, we don't have time to come to our senses in the normal way. Evolutionary biology always gave us the time to adapt. Because as you know, it's often misquoted, uh, uh, survival of the fittest didn't mean the strongest, it meant of the most adaptable, Adaptable. when Darwin wrote it. So what we have to do is adapt faster if the challenges are coming faster. And unfortunately, we're doing the reverse. We're becoming more set in our ways. We're holding on to the past because we're so afraid of the future. And what we need is political leadership that tells us what the future can be that's positive rather than tells us how bad it is and creates divisions and fears amongst us and drives wedges between us. We need to come together as a nation in the United States. We need to come together as a global civilization all over the world and say, wait a second, we only have one planet. This beautiful blue marble suspended in the void, the great abyss. We cannot afford to screw it up. Business is responding. Yeah. Will business respond fast enough do, do, will we rise to the challenge? I don't know, I, I, and I wish I did, because uh, I have grandchildren. So I'd like to say that it will, I can't, because the truth is we don't know. Uh, is it capable of it? Yes. If business decided to do it, we could do it. As business starts to understand that and comes together in greater numbers to, to create a sustainable future, then it will happen. But it's, it takes will. And I, I'd like to share this with you. I've never seen a problem 
including global population, climate change, any problem, that can't be solved with today's resources and technology. Period. Thank you. Ha, ha, ha.